I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to read the whole chapter, and we are going to look at um, this chapter, or the latter half of this chapter, over the next couple of weeks. Our focus will be on the parable in verse 11, but we're going to read the whole context. Here now is God's holy word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have just found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And <clears throat> felt, he felt compassion. He ran and embraced him. And kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring a fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began 
to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because in your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this parable of grace. We thank you, Lord, for this word which reveals who you are. We pray, O oh Lord, that this morning you would also reveal to us who we are, that you would help us, Lord, to situate ourselves in this parable, and that you would speak to us through your mercy and your grace. May we, O oh Lord, Embrace your gospel and your truth evermore, even as we consider your word this morning. Even though this is a familiar passage to many of us, Lord, we pray, would you speak to us and refresh us? And Lord, if we have never heard it, truly, I pray, would you work in our hearts to cause us to rejoice in it today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we uh, began this pandemic, I stepped out of my Roman series and began with a sermon a couple of chapters before this one, in chapter 13, where Jesus responds to tragedies. And I think it's fair to say that this far into the pandemic, what we have is no less than a tragedy. As of this morning, almost 280,000 people have died worldwide. And including 4,823 Canadians and seven Bajans. And that's, of course, what we know, and we're still uh, gathering those sort of statistics, and it's not over yet. In some places, they're even uh, speaking about a second wave coming in Asia. Now, you might recall when I gave that first sermon that Jesus, in chapter 13, when he was questioned about tragedies, does not answer the why question, the question that is often uh, on our hearts. Why does God allow this to happen? But instead, he takes the occasion of these tragedies to warn his questioners that the consequences of sin are real and that death and judgment await us all. And as I was preaching that, and as we've been going through this, uh, throughout these number of weeks, that's one of the things that we've, we've tried to convey, that there is uh, uh, a unique opportunity that this epidemic, uh, this pandemic <clears throat> affords us. Um, 
Our lives are disrupted in a way that none of us have ever known. And there is an opportunity that comes with that to consider and to think through these things. And I do believe that one of the things that God is seeking to accomplish through this is to give us pause to think about what is actually truly most important in our life. And Jesus is trying to convey that. And he's trying to convey to the, the, the Pharisees and those around him that the, the, the issue isn't so much about the justice of God in allowing tragedies to occur, but the reality of life and death and sin and judgment that must be addressed. And he says to those who are questioning him, in effect, he says, do you somehow think that you deserve a better end to your life than these victims? And those, in the case of uh, Luke chapter 13, it's, it's a tower falling and uh, a murder that's there. But we could easily just say, do we deserve a better end than those who have died of COVID? And Jesus then pleads with them to repent of their sins lest they likewise perish. And Jesus is, trying, is turning the, the tables on his questioners in this situation. And instead of enabling them to gain their own comfort and righteousness and comparing themselves favorably with the evil actions of others, he warns them of their own sinful and corrupt nature. And he pleads with them to repent of their sins lest it should rightly send them to hell. The wages of sin is death. Jesus' response may not satisfy our intellectual curiosity as to why, but his response is actually not harsh, but gracious. Jesus' answer expresses personal concern and compassion for the questioner's eternal destiny. Paul Washer uh, once said something to the effect that one of the greatest problems that we have in this world, in this modern age, is that we don't see how sinful we really are. Many of us think we could never be capable of such evil living in our modern scientific 21st century educated and cultured world. But if you are a student of even the most recent history, you know that that does not hold up. Perhaps the most educated and cultured society in the 20th century was to be found in Nazi Germany, who also were one of the worst as a society and as a leadership at uh, persecuting and killing people. They used the wisdom and the gifts that God had given them to find more efficient ways of hating and killing than had been seen before. But aside from not really knowing ourselves and underestimating man's capacity for evil, I think another piece of the puzzle is that many of us don't understand the grace of God who wrote himself into human history in order to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin. He loved the unlovable and he died to reconcile uh, Sinners, and that is that is the the, the 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 basis of what we celebrated at the Resurrection Sunday is that Jesus Christ came down and laid down his life on the cross and died 
the son of God. He, he had equality with God. He, he, he had nothing himself to prove, but he came down to bring us into relationship with God. And he died to restore rebels who have turned away from God, rebels like me and you in that situation. And he brought, he did that in order to make a way of salvation available to us. And that's something that really makes Christianity very different from every religion that you see out there. Because every religion that's out there is a form of a religion of works. That if only you do this thing, you pursue this path of moksha in, uh, in Hinduism, or uh, you pursue uh, this, the, the five pillars um, in Islam. If you can only do these things, then you, if you uh, do them well, will receive whatever um, blessing that particular religion promises you, whether it's uh, a better reincarnation or, or ultimate uh, uh, fulfillment in that, or if it's uh, paradise or, or some version of heaven. And, and all of those religions really have at the core in the base a religion of works righteousness, that we make ourselves uh, acceptable to God by what we do. But this parable shows us a very different thing. It is, I think, the, it reveals the central aspect of Christianity in a very powerful way. Because not only does it show us sin, and shows us sin in perhaps some surprising ways, it also shows the amazing grace of our God in this. You see, many people call this parable the parable of the prodigal son. That's what it says here in my ESV Bible. But it's not really the right title for this. First of all, as the, the parable is about two sons. As Jesus begins it in verse 11, it says there was a man who had two sons. But more importantly, as the previous two parables in this chapter uh, reveal, this parable focuses not so much on the sons. Sometimes when we preach things out of context, it actually is focusing itself on the father, the one who seeks the lost. We see this refrain over and over again in the chapter, the refrain that we see in verse 7, just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needed no repentance. There is a joy in knowing this God that is a unique joy that is found in no other relationship with no other being on, in this universe. This parable, then, is fundamentally about the Father. Um, Tim Keller argues that a better title, and he's written a book called this, is called The Prodigal God. Because we, even though we, we talk about the prodigal son, we don't actually know what that word means. If you look it up in a dictionary, prodigal does not mean what we think it means. We think it might mean wayward, you know, the, the wayward son. But actually what uh, prodigal means is recklessly spend thrift. And when you think of generosity that is recklessly spendthrift, when it comes to grace, there is only one being that fits that bill in this, in this parable, and that is God himself. And we're going to see this portrayed as we look at this parable 
over the next two Sundays. Um, some of you might know that Charles Dickens, the famous English novelist, called this short story the best short story ever written. And perhaps it is because it encapsulates and teaches the best story of all. I was just uh, watching the Star Wars trilogy, or I, what is it? I don't know what the nine version of that is with my kids in, uh, in, in isolation here. And, and they all love the, the story. And they, 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 some of them were discovering it or rediscovering it. And one of the things that I say to them constantly is, what do they actually like about the story? And when you look at many of the, the things that we enjoy and we delight in, they're really subsets of redemption. They're subsets of salvation. They are all sort of a subset of the greatest story. But those, the, the wonderful thing about this is that this story that we have before us in Scripture is not some fictional science fiction space opera. It's actually real. It's historical. And Jesus unfolds this story of God's grace and his mercy and his redemption here for us in this short story, this parable. And my prayer is that as we look at this over the next couple of weeks, you will come to be refreshed and to love it uh, for the first time or to love it and delight in it again. This morning, we're just going to look at the first half of the parable, which focuses on the younger son. Oftentimes, this is the only thing that gets focused on. But as we'll see over um, the next week, we'll see that this parable is actually more focused um, in many ways on the older son. And uh, we'll see that a little bit. So we will, we will touch on him a little bit this morning. But we will look at in him in depth more next week. This morning we're going to look at the first last son then under three simple headings. A shameful act, a life of shame, and a shameless restoration. First of all, a shameful act. Now, before we get into the story of the, uh, the younger son, we need to review the context a little bit before we get to this opening act. We need to see who Jesus was actually addressing. Just like there are two brothers who are in this parable, there are two distinct groups that are listening to this as Jesus was teaching here. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the first group is identified as the tax collectors and sinners. These were the people who were outside of the Jewish religious society um, because they didn't follow the ceremonial laws and because they uh, basically had uh, uh, turn to the Roman state and, and become traitors. And in a sense, they represent the trajectory and the path of the younger son, uh, the, the younger son that leaves home and leaves the traditional morality of his family and respectable society. And these, these tax collectors and sinners were frankly living according to their own passions one of those passions was the pursuit of money, the pursuit of pleasure. And tax collectors were considered the lowest of the low in Jewish religious society because they collaborated with the Romans. 
And they were known for being liars and cheats who would give anything. And so, so they're easily identified as a group of sinners. But there was another group that Jesus has been addressing all along in these chapters, even going back to chapter 13, which we referenced earlier. And that would be the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's in response to the attitude towards the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus starts telling these parables in the first place. Look at verse 3. It says, so he told them this parable. In other words, it's their attitude towards these, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now Jesus launches into these three parables, the, 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 the ultimate of which is the one that is our focus this morning. And so we need to understand that these are people that can't stand the fact that Jesus would have anything to do with the first group, with the tax collectors and sinners. They don't really even understand what attracts them to Jesus's ministry, and they grumble about it. And so this is what Jesus does. Now, as we look at this third parable, as we consider the shameful act of this, this, uh, this wayward son, what we need to understand is that Jesus is seeking to address both groups in his audience. The tax collectors and sinners are represented by the trajectory of the younger son. And the self-righteous Pharisees are represented by the, uh, the trajectory of the older or the elder brother. We need to recognize at the outset that both attitudes are a problem. Both attitudes are idolatrous. The selfish living of the younger brother in this parable is a form of idolatry where the importance of money, sex, power, influence, and everything else is more important and elevated to such a degree that they govern and dominate the life and actions of that particular person. But at the same time, the self-righteousness of the goody-two-shoes elder brother is his idol, is his comfort. And he draws his ultimate being, his ultimate purpose and his ultimate satisfaction from being better than everybody else. He is the good son. He's not selfish and judgmental like his younger brother. And sorry, he's not selfish. He's judgmental. He's, indu- he's not indulgent like his other uh, younger brother. He's disciplined. The very things that many people value most. But we need to understand that both of these approaches to life miss the mark. They seek their satisfaction from something that cannot provide what we need, that doesn't last. And instead of a deep and eternal and satisfying relationship with God, they look to themselves. Ultimately, both worldviews, both of the older brother and of the younger brother, look in on themselves. And what I want to ask you this morning is, where do you fall in this? Do you find yourself trajectorying? Do you find yourself trending towards the young, indulgent, self-centered lifestyle of the younger brother? Or do you find yourself taking refuge in your discipline, in your orderliness, in your goodness? And this is what makes this parable so powerful because it addresses our tendencies and it simplifies and presents them in this way. Well, let's look at then what's happening here in this opening scene of the parable. It begins with a shameful act, and 
a shocking request that, that uh, the younger son makes in verse um, 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, Jesus' listeners would have been utterly appalled at this request. They would have been shocked to their core. It wasn't so much that the younger uh, son was expecting an inheritance. In the Old Covenant, in Deuteronomy 21.17, it lays out a very, very clear inheritance law. And that was that the elder son would receive two-thirds of the father's <clears throat> wealth, and the younger would receive the one-third or remainder of the estate. But the shocking thing about this wasn't that he was, he was interested in that. The, the shocking thing was that he wanted it now. He wanted it now. And basically what he's saying to his father is, drop dead. Drop dead. I want my money. Drop dead. Right? Now, we don't have to be Middle Eastern in, uh, in, in, the time, in the first century to, uh, to appreciate that this is entirely disrespectful. Basically, though, what he's expressing is the heart of our sinfulness. And I think that it's important for us to, to tease this out a little bit, because sometimes we sort of distance ourselves from some of these biblical characters, and we think, well, that couldn't be me. But what, what the younger son was really saying is that he wanted to use the father's wealth, but he had no, no, no want or no desire for the father himself. And I think that if we examine our hearts, we find that we use people and we approach people like this sinfully ourselves, don't we? I think we get more sophisticated as we get older, but we still have this habit oftentimes of using people. I remember when I was a boy, I had a friend who lived down the street. I should say friend, because I think he was more a friend to me than I was to him. His name was Edward. And uh, it, I'm ashamed to admit that my friendship for, with Edward was really based on what Edward had. You see, Edward, unlike me, had all of the latest video games and toys, the, the kinds that my, my parents couldn't afford or wouldn't get for me. Maybe some of the children can uh, relate to this. Maybe you have a friend. I remember he had a green machine, which was this really mean looking uh, uh, big wheel type uh, toy and you drive it around and he got a Commodore VIC-20. Yeah, that's a really old computer, but he got a computer and I'd never seen one. I went into his house and I would play this game where it was like a little mouse you know, going around the cheese, it would be very boring today to many people, but I was just thrilled with this. And I loved going to play at Edward's toy, with Edward's toys. Now, the interesting thing is that Edward would always be talking to me all the time, but I'd be like, I'm not interested in really relating to Edward. I wanted to play with Edward's toys. And so our relationship did not last for very long. But I think that it is something that we do, maybe in a more sophisticated way, even as we get older. And this is what idolatry really is. Um, this is why it's sin, right? An idolatrous uh, thing is something that we take, it may be even a good thing, that we place in the, in the place of God and we make it an ultimate thing. And that's what makes it an idolatrous thing. That's what makes it 
a bad thing because only God can be worshiped. And when we receive gifts from God, they are meant to enhance our relationship with God. They are meant to create thankful hearts and, and delighting not in the things so much as in the giver of those things. So when we don't do that, when we put our focus and we, we get absorbed in the toys of life, we are, in a sense, doing similar things to what the younger brother was doing. In fact, in Romans, it tells us the wrath of God is being poured out against us because we worship the created things rather than the creator. We worship the toys instead of the owner and the creator. And that's the shocking thing to see how this son responds. He likes his father's wealth. He wants his father's wealth, but he wants nothing to do with his father. But the other shocking and appalling thing to the Jewish audience, and I think by extension to us, is what happens in the second part of verse 12, where it says, and he, that's the father, divided his property between them. Now, a traditional Middle Eastern father's response to this kind of thing would have meant a physical beating and a casting out of his home. If you examine the, the, uh, the cultural and sociological interpretations of this, that's how it would have been done. The, the son would be uh, blessed to make it out of this alive, frankly. But that's not how the father reacts here. That's what's so shocking, right? Verse two, he divided his property, verse 12, sorry, he divided his property between them. Now that's fundamentally incredible. Think about what that entails. You know, again, it's not like he had the cash on hand. It would mean that he would have to go and liquidate uh, probably his property holdings in order to do that, to get a third of a state. And, and as we know, land is vital in the Israelite culture. Their identity was drawn up in it. The land was a gift from God. And literally, that the son was asking him to sever that and to monetize that and give it to him so that he could do whatever he wanted with it. And the amazing thing is the father does it. The father allows him to do this. He tears apart his life for his son. He endures rejection and tremendous loss of honor. And he goes through agony for his son. Are you beginning to get a picture here? You see, this is what our sin does. Our God is impassable. He is indeed higher and, and greater than we are. But our sinful idolatries are wicked and they are against God. How often we take the goodness that we enjoy for granted. We have been given so much by God. Even now, as we've had some things taken away, maybe our liberty, maybe our, some of our income, maybe all of our income, we still have roofs over our heads. We still have food and friends. We still have the body of Christ. All of those things, God 
has provided for us. But oftentimes, we're confronted how we want his blessings and not him. We want the things that he provides and not him. This is one of the things I think we get a misconception about heaven. We think of heaven in a very Muslim way, where it talks about, uh, you know, sexual pleasures, you know, the 70 virgins and everything else. We think of it in terms of it being unending gifts. But the Bible speaks about heaven in terms of being with Christ. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. He is within her, right? Our joy and our delight is truly in relationship to God. And so if you're not delighting in God in some way here on earth, even if it's in a sin-soaked, sin-stained situation and environment, you're going to find heaven to be a disappointment. In fact, you're probably not going to go there because you don't have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with God's things, with God's creatures, with God's creation. But you don't know the maker. You don't know the author and perfecter of it all. You see, our hearts are idolatrous. We latch on to those things. And those things become our functional gods. We want those blessings. We don't want God. We don't want a relationship. We want a God that we can package up and control. We want a God a little bit like Santa Claus. You think about that? We want a God that just gives us gifts, gives us gifts, gives us gifts. We don't really think about, actually, the legend of Santa Claus very much. Because if we thought about that, we might not want a God who keeps a list of who's naughty or nice, right? Who has this omniscientness and then gives according to how good we perform, right? The naughty list. (laughs) The reality is we're all on the naughty list and we all deserve the lump of coal in our stocking. You see, you don't want God to be like Santa. You ever thought? even in the middle of this pandemic, what if God gave COVID-19 based on the way that we lived our lives? What if he gave it based on what you've done with your life up until this point? We'd have a whole planet infected, right? It's a terrifying thought. But thankfully, that's not how God Operates. The psalmist in Psalm 130, verse 1, puts it this way If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. The picture of the Father here is of one of incredible long suffering and patience. And that is the real picture of God. That's the picture of God in tragedy. That's the picture of God. In the scriptures, he is patient with you. He does not wish any of you to perish. But why do we have this time? So that we have time to repent. That's what the scriptures teach. God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He is gracious and merciful. And even now, he calls you to come home. Now, despite the shameful act here of the younger brother, Instead of acting retributively, 
the father takes the shame on himself and graciously breaks up his wealth and gives it to the wayward rebel son. He literally gives his life. The Greek here says uh, for property is the Greek word bios, which is life, means life. The father literally tears his life apart. The resources which sustain his life, he gives to his son. But the amazing grace of the father is lost on the son. We see secondly in verse 13, what the son does with this life that has been given to him. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property, his bios, his life in reckless living. The first thing that that the, the young son does is he liquidates his father's assets. The word gathered here in verse 13 is synagogum, which comes from the financial word. It means to turn basically one's property into cash. He liquidated it all. Now, we know from the end of the story that the rich man is obviously very wealthy, and this would have been a sizable sum of money. And the thinking of the son here is that in buying, in liquidating this land, that he's actually buying his freedom. He's no longer going to be bound by this, this family and its ridiculous culture and everything. He's going, to, he's going to cut his own path. He's going to do his own thing. He's free to spend his life and his assets as he wants. And, you know, what's interesting about that is that it's really a reflection of our society's views today. This is the 21st century mindset, is it not? Are, this is the, kind of, the kind of things that, are, that our society puts value on. The idea is that, that our young people need to grow up and, and sever the ties with their, their families, and, or, or at least you know, just put them to the side and, and go on a quest to find themselves and, and, and to find their personal freedom and fulfillment is the ultimate driving force there. And as the writer of the Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. The reality is that left to our sinful nature, none of us would choose to, to stay under God's authority. And this is something we don't, we don't often see um, in our culture. Uh, the, the, the whole mentality is that you grow up in the home and then you go off and, and, and you, you find yourself in university. You party, you, you, you embrace a worldly lifestyle. And you delight in being away from parental oversight. And that is our sinful desire. That is our sinful um, uh, development in all of these things. But the reality is that there is no fulfillment in that. The younger son gets wasted. He wastes his money. He wastes his sexuality. He wastes his youth and his health. And this is where we get that word prodigal from. He is recklessly wasteful with the gifts that God has given to them. And not surprisingly, he finds himself with all of his money gone. 
Now, before you sit there in judgment on this prodigal, let me ask you again a question. How reckless are you in your life, in your living? Do you waste your resources feeding your addictions, indulging your passions, and giving away the precious resources that the Father has given to you? Do you squander your time? We have so much more time, or some of us do, right? Or it seems like we do. Do you squander your time, your money, and your talents on yourself instead of investing them in the greatness and the kingdom of God? It's easy to fall into this pattern. We think, oh, well, you know, it doesn't really hurt to do that just once or twice. We just want to have a good time. We, we deserve it, right? Or as the old L'Oreal commercial would say, you're worth it, right? That's, that's the message, the whispers that we hear. And at the end of the day, the question is, what are we left with? Like the younger brother here, if we have nothing of eternal benefit, we are left with nothing. What a waste. Been thinking about what happens when this period of COVID comes to an end and we can once again go back to work, some of us, uh, or uh, return to something of the normal routine. We had that time. Some have been off work. And the question is, how did you use that time? Right? What did you use that time in doing? Sometimes we think, we look at a day and each day runs into the next and it's like, what a waste. What did I do with that day? Where did that day go? We're wasteful. We're recklessly spendthrift with some of the gifts that God gives to us. But here we see in this story, and we'll see it even more so when we deal with the elder brother next week, we have a gracious God who shows mercy and long-suffering and grace. Every so often, we see our sinfulness. Every so often, we see our indulgence, don't we? In those moments of silence at night where we wonder, is this all there is to life? What am I living for? There's got to be something more to this. But the young son isn't even there. He's just at the lowest of the low. He has no money because he spent it all. When he had spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. <clears throat> he has no money and there's a famine. And he had planned on spending money. He, he hadn't planned about running out of food or running out of money. So what does he do? Well, he does what he does in desperation. He gets a job feeding pigs. Now, of course, if you know the Jewish religious system, you know that this is the lowest position of the low. Pigs were unclean animals. He can't even get a job working with his own people or for his own people, so he ends up working for Gentiles feeding pigs. And... Uh, Leviticus in the Old Testament law tells us very clearly that pigs are unclean. So thus now he would not only be, um, he would not only be in religiously unclean, but he'd be unclean and, and separated from his people. He, he was just getting further and further away from what he had. 
And to make matters worse, he's even hungry for what they're eating. Now they would feed the pigs likely with carob pods, which were not, they're not edible for us. If we eat them, we get sick. Um, but he's, he's yearning for those pods that he's, he's feeding them. He's so desperate. And what is being pictured here is really our spiritual condition outside of a relationship with God. Outside of God, we are spiritually bereft. We are spiritually starving. We are spiritually in starvation. We have no spiritual food. And that is what we need. We're more than just those things. We're not more than just the sum of our parts, the, the things that we can see, feel, taste, touch, right? Smell, all of those things. Because <clears throat> the material does not provide the satisfaction that we often think that it does. Some years ago, um, there was an article in Business Week that I saw uh, about a man named Jack Whitaker. And uh, he was a famous, he, he became famous because he won at the time the largest Powerball lottery in American history in West Virginia. He won $314 million. Now I think since then there's been way more uh, delineated, but $314 million is a chunk of change. But what was interesting in this article was that winning that money did change his life, but it utterly ruined it. It utterly ruined it. It estranged him from his wife. His relatives all uh, came after him for money, and it separated him from them. And his beloved granddaughter that he gave, I think, $50,000 or something a year or two on a regular basis, she developed a drug habit and died of an overdose. And so the very things that he had most prized, even when he had, he had given, been given this, this money and everything else, it ended up ruining his life. And you see, that's interesting. Sometimes the Lord allows us to indulge in our idols in order for us to see their emptiness. Sometimes it's a terrible judgment when God enables us. And, and we see here in this, this parable that the younger son had that. He was enabled to indulge in his, his idols of, of, of selfishness and, and squandering and reveling in wealth and in pleasure and all of those things. But he, he, he was also graciously allowed to experience the famine allowed to experience the emptiness. And so it's at this low point that this prodigal tries once again to work himself out of it, but he can't. So the text says here, it says, he came to himself. Now this is a surprising twist to the story. This is actually the beginning of the prodigal repenting. He realizes what he's come to at this particular point in time, and he realizes where he's fallen from. He's like, I'm down here in, with the pigs, and I was up here with my father. I had all of the blessings that he gave to me. He realized the fall. And so he begins to reason and wrestle with his situation, to reason and wrestle with his reality. And he starts talking to himself, and we see this in verse 18. He says, uh, he, he, he's like, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me 
as one of your hired servants. <clears throat> so when he says here, I have sinned against heaven, that's, that's really a polite Jewish way of saying, I've sinned against God. And, I, and he's going to go to say to, to his dad, you know, I understand that what I've not just sinned against you, I've sinned against God. God is displeased with the live, but I've, but I've dishonored you. And, 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 and I know that you're a generous and a kind God, maybe, kind father. Maybe you will provide a, a, a place in the lowest of the low of your hired servants for me. So he starts rehearsing this plan in his mind. But even this repentance is a flawed repentance. You say, well, why is it flawed? Because it's a situation where he came to himself, or more literally, he turned to himself. And this is the last place that he should have turned. Right? His motivation was really out of desperation. It wasn't about out of regret alone. It was out of need. He needed food. He needed to live. He needed to survive. And so he turns again to his own resources. And we can see this kind of repentance is something that sometimes masquerades for real repentance. The same phrase, by the way, is used by Pharaoh in, in his false repentance over the plague of locusts. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 16, it says, Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Right? Sounds good. But it wasn't real. Because all that Pharaoh was interested in was the plague ending. And at this point, the prodigal son just wants to, to have a way to survive. The prodigal son had failed with all of his resources to save himself with a paying job in a foreign country. Now he returns to get a job, that whatever job he can in his community, depending on the grace of his father. He will save himself by keeping the law of his community. He can't expect to be made a son again. He can only expect to be a hired hand. He can expect to have the lowest of the low. And he thinks that he will be able to get that. He'd be able to at least get that based on his, his credentials. And here's the reality. That's often how we treat God, isn't it? Even after we come to faith in Christ, we know that we're in his debt, but we still try and balance the books and earn back God's favor and make deals with God in these situations. But it can't be done because we can't save ourselves. We can't repent in our own strength and in our own capacity. We need God. But this is the beginning. He realizes there is a problem. And he heads for home. And even though he has lived a life of shame, even though he has made a shameful uh, uh, demand on his father, what we see here at one of the climaxes, and I say one of the climaxes of this tale, is a shameless restoration. As lost as this son is, all is not lost. Why? Is it because he pulled up his bootstraps, he pulled up his socks, and he took responsibility and went back and, and demanded 
that, that he be considered as, as a servant of God and, and, and just, you know, bit the bitter uh, wood of, 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 uh, of humility and, and said, you know, I did wrong. Just give me a job and I'll, I'll, I'll earn my way up. Um, and, and, and does his father respect his honesty and say, good job, son. You made a mistake, but now you've made it better and welcome back. All right, you can earn your way up. I'll put you down at the lowest of the low. You can start in the mailroom and make your way up again in that sense. Is that what happens? No. No. You see, all is not lost. And he doesn't have to begin at the bottom again because of one simple thing, one simple fact, the love of the father. You see, the son is almost home, not because of his own brilliant ingenuity of working his way out of the situation, but because of the father's love. You see, even in his plan to work his way out of the situation, it depends to a certain extent on his father's love. And it is something that's truly dependable. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Beautiful picture. This is the love of God for lost sinners like you. And like me, it's a love that sent Jesus to the cross to die while we were yet sinners to reconcile us to him. It's a love that seeks us out. It's a love that's running to receive you even before you have a full chance to repent. A love that surrounds you even when you stink like a pig. It's a beautiful love. It's a beautiful love. The son didn't say anything. The father ran to him. The father lavished, recklessly spent his love and his grace. Verse 21, all he gets out is a little bit. Son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't even get to that plan, you know. Uh, that's there. But the father said to his servants, doesn't even address the son, says to your servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. and Let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the picture, right? This is the picture of God's gracious celebration. It's God's, God's character that is being celebrated here. The Father's character. It's great, great joy when you see kindness being expressed, when you see mercy being expressed. Does it not fill you with great joy? Right? The Father had great joy that the, the Son was coming home, but the, the joy, the rejoicing 
was at the mercy and the grace of the Father. Could you imagine being one of the servants and seeing how, how the Father dealt with, 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 the, with his son? Right? It's, it's amazing. He gives him his robe and his ring. These are the marks of sonship. The best robe would have been his robe. His robe for mine. There's a great hymn that we're going to learn called His Robes for Mine. Right? He gives that to his son. He gives him the ring, the signet ring, that which conveyed the, the, the family ownership. He had been utterly restored. And it's, it's, it's a kind of response that, that really is not what we expect. I mean, maybe you've heard this, um, this parable so many times that you know how, to, how, it, uh, how it results in, and, and some of the wonder and some of the joy and some of the, 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 the brilliance of it may have faded because you've heard it all. You've grown up with it. It's one of the, the ones that you're told when you're, when you're a child. But it is, it, it's truly stupendous. And, and perhaps hearing about how someone heard it for the first time might be helpful to you. I was hearing this week about a missionary to China who was trying to teach this gospel parable to, uh, to the people there. And he asked a Chinese friend to uh, illustrate it for him. And when he saw the illustration, it showed this pivotal scene in verse 20 where the, the, the father is supposed to be running to the son. But instead, the picture showed <clears throat> uh, the father standing at the gate, watching his son come up the path. And the missionary asked the illustrator, uh, why he had depicted the story that way. Instead of, as the Bible talked about, the father losing his dignity, which is what he would have done, you'd have to grab up his robes and run down the street. Right? That's, Middle Eastern men don't do that. Right? They don't sprint like this. Right? This is what we see the picture of. The, the, and, and, and this illustrator had just illustrated the father standing at the gate. And the illustrator said, no Chinese father would ever do that. No Chinese father would ever do that. It would be too undignified. It would be too shameful. And the missionary said, you're right. No Chinese or other human father would do that. That's the difference with the grace of God. It's a grace that can only come from God. It's a grace that can only be truly expressed from God. It's not us meeting God halfway. No, it's God running and grabbing us and pulling us out of the pit, out of the pig's muck and rescuing us and bringing us into his family and granting us all of the joy and the pleasures of his household, not as the end, but as a reflection of who he is in his grace and in his generosity. It's awesome. It's truly amazing. No human father would do this. And a neat little coda to that story of the missionary is that after the conversation with the missionary, the illustrator went back and he, uh, he corrected it to depict the father running out to meet his son. And he painted mismatched shoes on the father because the father was in such a haste to get out there. He didn't care what he was wearing. He just wanted to go there and be with his son. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? of the reckless spendthrift, the prodigal God, 
that is depicted in this passage. The God of mercy and the grace. He is the God who wants his sons and his daughters to come home. This is the grace of our God. Do you know that love of the Father this morning? Will you come home to it? Wouldn't it be amazing this Mother's Day if you came to know a love that is even greater than your mom's? Well, Pastor Chris, you can't say that. My mother is an incredibly loving human being. She sacrificed so much for us. That may be true. But mothers are just human. And they are sinners after all. And they fall short of the glory of God. Mothers need God. There is no greater love than that which is of God to us. Remember what Isaiah says in Isaiah 49, verse 15. It says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? And the answer to that question is yes. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. That's the promise of God. See, even those who are most precious to us, even those who are blessings to us, will fail. I will fail and I have failed my children. I have sinned against them and I've sinned against God. And I don't want them to put their hope and I don't want their ultimate desire and, and motivation be to please me because I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it. God is, God is. He's recklessly spendthrift with his grace and his mercy. And he invites you to come home. Do you know this God? Have you come into a real relationship with him? Have you known his grace and his mercy? You can. You can. Look to Jesus Christ and you will live. As Jesus said many times in the gospel of Luke, he said, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the gospel. This is the God of grace. This is the story that is the greatest story that has ever been told because it is the history of our God and his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed the God who is recklessly spendthrift with your grace. And we need it, O oh Lord, because we have done nothing to earn it. Our religious acts, our sinful acts, Lord, all of them, none of them, all of our attempts and bargains and, and, and uh, uh, the things that we try and do to somehow make ourselves right, they're all worthless. They're all as filthy rags before you. It is only through the grace of Jesus Christ, for it is by grace we are saved through faith, and this not from ourselves the gift of God. Thank you for that gift. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in your mercy, which is more than all of our sin. Give us that grace. Help us to rejoice in it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.